Well, this morning we're going to open in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. Now, as you're doing that, I want you to do something. I'm going to sort of ask you to multitask as you open your Bible. And what I want you to do is I want you to look up at the sky. And I want you to see how beautiful the world in which we live is. I want you to look at the trees, their majesty. I want you to feel that soft breeze as it blows the pages of your Bible and noise the dickens out of you as you try to find Matthew 27. And I want you to approach what I am about to read in the knowledge that the person who made all of this speaks. That in fact it was the one who made all of this, it was, it was his word that created it all. I want you to open your Bibles in the knowledge that God speaks to us in his word. So that the Bible itself sets the agenda for what we are going to consider this morning. Indeed, as we open to Matthew 27, we don't have dead words on a page But we have the living word of the living God, the eternal and the almighty one who has something that he wants you to know. And that something this morning is found in Matthew 27, verses 11 through 26. I want you to follow along with me as I read. Now Jesus stood before the governor. And the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, you have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. And then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be 
crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. And then he released for them Barabbas, having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. This is the word of the living God. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that uh, as we consider what you would have us to consider this morning, that you would not only give us eyes to see and ears to hear, but that you would give us hearts transformed by the power of your word, that even as you spoke and creation came to be, that you would speak this morning and that new creations would form. That you draw men and women to yourself and build us up in the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you just scan the offerings on a streaming service, say like Netflix, uh, you will notice that we seem to have more than a passing interest in the topic of wrongful convictions. Making a murderer, the confession tapes, the innocent man, the innocent films, the list goes on and on, showing that we seem to be attracted to the idea of someone who is wrongfully convicted of a crime. And I think the reason for that is that in a society that values justice, there's very little that is more horrifying to our sensibilities than the idea of an innocent man or woman being punished for a crime that they did not commit Or the parallel, the thought of a guilty person being left unpunished. And so we watched with great interest, even scouring the internet for clues in between episodes, all all the while trying to answer that nagging question, why? Why? Why did the prosecution not share that piece of helpful evidence with the defense? Why did the defense not put up more of a fight? Why did the jury conclude as they did? Why? And as that's the most burning question, so often as we watch these true crime documentaries, it is, in fact, the most important question that you and I can ask of Matthew chapter 27. Why? In fact... If we don't get this question right, we're going to think about Jesus merely as another in a long line of innocent people who have been sentenced to death for a crime that they did not commit. Just throw his name on the pile. But if you actually understand the the biblical answer to the question why, this this answer has the, the, the power not only to change your understanding of Jesus, but to change your life eternally. Now, if this text were itself a documentary, the camera would be trained on Pilate. Pilate is the central figure of our text. He appears at every point along the way, but don't be confused. Pilate serves merely to tell us more about Jesus than about himself, just as Matthew intends. Pilate here helps us answer the question, why? 
If you're looking for a way that this text sort of breaks down, you'll notice in verses 11 and 15 we have uh, the word now. There's sort of a change of scene in verse 15 from what happens in verses 11 to 14. So that you have in 11 to 14, Pilate and Jesus, conversation between the two. And then in verses 15 to 23, Pilate and the crowd that is gathered there in Jerusalem for the Passover. So if you're keeping notes or want to just follow along, that'll be our outline this morning. Pilate and Jesus, 11 to 14, and Pilate and the crowd, 15 to 26. Let's look first at Pilate and Jesus. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death, and they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. That's what Matthew tells us in verses 1 and 2 of this chapter. And he's sort of taken a hiatus in verses 3 to 10 to tell us to follow the money as he shows us that Jesus fulfills scripture even in the way that he's betrayed and the amount of money for which he is betrayed. But now in verse 11, we resume the story, uh, the narrative of Jesus being handed over to Pilate. In verse 11, we read, now Jesus stood before the governor. And the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Just so you understand what's going on here and the way things worked, the chief priests and the elders of, of the people, the, the Jewish leaders of the day, they have already determined Jesus must die. And they've resolved to put him to death. They've already done that as, as far back as verse 1 of this very same chapter. They already have decided that Jesus deserves to die. But they need Pilate to write off, uh, to sign off rather, on, on his crucifixion. They need Pilate to agree with them. As the Roman governor here, appointed by Caesar over this area, he had the power, was well within his rights, to uphold a death sentence or to overturn a death sentence. And so you find Pilate here interrogating Jesus as he's brought before him. That makes perfect sense, doesn't it? I mean, this man is not going to make a rash decision about a person he's just met's life without asking some questions, is he? And so he begins to interrogate Jesus. And the first question that he asks is, are you the king of the Jews? That's a great question. That's a big question. That's the question for Matthew. He tells us Jesus was born the king of the Jews in chapter 2. He tells us that Jesus will die the king of the Jews in chapter 27. And he tells us that he will be raised as the one who has all authority in heaven and earth, not merely the king of the Jews, the king of the universe in Matthew 28. Are you the king of the Jews? That's the biggest question Matthew wants us to answer. Of course he's the king of the Jews. But you have to imagine that if you're Pilate and you're trying to maintain order in a Roman territory, that if this man is claiming to be the king, that presents a certain set of challenges for you. Hard to stay in Caesar's good graces if there's, you know, uproar and a coup forming. And so Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Never mind that. It's all right. And Jesus said, you have said so. Pilate, your words, not mine, but you've gotten it right. Now, there's a way to read this that sort of begins to picture Jesus as sort of distancing himself from being forthright. Are you the king of the Jews? He doesn't merely say yes. He says, you have said it, Pilate, your words, not mine, you've gotten it right. 
Is Jesus trying to distance himself from answering the question? Is he playing politics even as Pilate is himself? I don't think so. In 1 Timothy 6.13, Paul is trying to encourage a young pastor to faithfulness and holiness. And he says, I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. That's what Jesus does here. He makes the good confession. Are you the king of the Jews? Yes, I'm the king of the Jews. That's the good confession. But see, I want you to notice that that's what's so strange about this text. And it is strange. Because Jesus answers the question about his identity. If you like, he answers the question about his royalty. But I want you to notice that there's a very deliberate contrast in the passage that Jesus will not answer questions about his righteousness. He'll answer about his royalty. He will not answer about his righteousness. Look at verses 12 to 14 with your eyes open for butts, a pair of butts. That's one T. Verse 12, but when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. And Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? Verse 14, but he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Who is this man? Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so. Don't you hear what they're saying about you? Don't you hear all the charges that are being brought against you? Aren't you going to defend yourself? What king doesn't defend his honor? What regal does not uphold his righteousness? This is insanity. And Pilate has to be thinking, don't you realize that the, the power of your life is in my hands? And yet Jesus remains silent. That's exactly what he did in chapter 26 when the chief priest asked him a question. You might remember from Jeremy's sermon on chapter 26. Matthew tells us there that Jesus simply remain silent, 2663. What's with this? Jesus won't defend himself. Isn't he innocent? Now, I think that Matthew has brought up the silence of Jesus before his accusers enough times for me to say that this is an illusion. That's illusion with an A, not illusion with an I. These things happened. It's an illusion. If I could use a big Bible word. So what in the world is an illusion? Let me explain with a really folksy example. So in my house, we have these coffee mugs, these thermos-style coffee mugs that sometimes I want a big dose of caffeine in the morning. I'll fill them up and screw the, the lid on as, as tightly as possible so as not to spill it on my computer or my Bible, even worse, and uh, have a good cup and, and get to work. And then at the, the end of the day, when I'm done with the, the thermos, I'll put it in the sink uh, foolishly for Kelly to wash. And uh, it will, it's routine that I'll hear something from Kelly. She'll say, Mike, uh, you've screwed this on too tightly, the lid. I need you to come and help me remove it if you'd like me to wash it. Now, there are a couple ways that I can answer that. Well, there, there's one way I can answer. We all know that. But there's a couple of variations of that one answer is what I'm trying to say. I could say, sure, I'll, I'll come and unscrew that. Or imagine I look at her and I smile as 
largely as I can, sort of try to exaggerate my jawline, and I say, no problem, Lois. What am I saying? I'm saying, yes, I can unscrew that. I'm more powerful than a locomotive. I'm Superman. Can't you tell? Now, see, I've alluded to the fact that I'm Superman without quoting anything, just by merely bringing up Lois Lane. I'm inviting her to think of me in light of the reference to Lois Lane. And here, what Matthew is doing throughout 26 and 27 is he's inviting us to view Jesus through an allusion to the prophet Isaiah. And here is, here is the why. Jesus would not answer a charge against him even with a word. Isaiah chapter 53. I want you to hear verse 7 of Isaiah's prophecy. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Twice. He did not answer him a word. Twice in Matthew 27, here in Isaiah, he opened not his mouth. Twice, he's as silent as a lamb. You hear the illusion? Well, let's continue. Verses 8 and 9 of Isaiah 53, right after verse 7, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Matthew's saying, you better understand Jesus in light of Isaiah. You better understand what kind of king this is in light of Isaiah. Because the people of, of Jesus' day, we're waiting for a, a liberator, someone whom Pontius Pilate would have to stand before and answer to, not the other way around. A king who would come and remove all the Roman oppression from Jerusalem, liberating the people of God politically. But friends, what the Jewish people needed and what you and I need is not merely a king who will rule over us, we need, you need, I need a king who will suffer for us. And by remaining silent in the face of his accusations, of the accusations against him, Jesus proclaims, I am the king you need. The one who's come not merely to rule, but to suffer. The one who has come at least on this occasion not to mete out judgment but to stand under it. Why doesn't Jesus answer when Pilate brings before him all the charges that the chief priests and the elders are leveling against him? He's silent because his silence is his best defense. Are you the king of the Jews? Yes. But what kind of king? A king who will be stricken for the sins of God's people, though he has done no violence and there is no deceit in his mouth. And so Jesus says, 
Not a word. Non-Christian friend, what I would want you to see this morning is that as Jesus stands and hears the charges against him, he remains silent because ultimately he knows he is standing under the charges against you. He is an idolater. She dishonors her parents. He is a murderer. She's an adulteress. He's a thief. She covets. He's a liar. She's a porn addict. He's a racist. She's a gossip. Jesus stands silent in the face of the charges against him because he's willing to be sentenced to death justly, deservedly in your place. See, what Matthew's doing here is he is subtly suggesting that Jesus stands as our substitute. Friend, if I could just make it plain. Before the eternal and almighty God who made all of this that you see, you stand guilty and condemned. You have broken his law. You have offended. You have sinned. And you must be punished. Punishment everywhere in the New Testament for sin is hell. Not exactly politically correct, but each and every one of us, apart from Jesus, deserves hell. And yet the good news of the Christian gospel is that Jesus, the King, who rules with all authority, the Son of God, willingly stands in your place and is condemned for your sin. If you'll only believe it. If you'll only trust it. If you'll only confess it was my sin that held him there. Because in my place condemned he stood. And we have to move on. If substitution is the subtle suggestion of 11 to 14, it is the symbolism of 15 to 24. I want you to see this as we make our way through the passage, focusing on the drama as it plays out for Pilate. With me at verse 15. Now, here we go. A bit of a change of scenes. At the feast, that's the feast of the Passover. There are three great feasts that the Jews have gone up to Jerusalem for, Passover, weeks, and booths. There's this great feast happening, and it's Pilate's custom to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? If you can imagine in Jerusalem, I want you to to think with me about Times Square on New Year's Eve. 
And there, as you know, there are people all throughout New York City who sort of gather there to celebrate New Year's Eve. There are people who come far and wide out of state to be there and to witness the ball drop on uh, New Year's Eve at midnight. There's a massive group of, of uh, native New Yorkers and people who come in far and wide. And here on this day, though, it's a religious holiday, a very more, much more important holiday, the holiday of Passover, the Feast of Passover. You have native, native Jerusalemites and all sorts of Jews who've come from areas like Galilee as they follow Jesus into the city. There's a massive group of people. And Pilate stands there before the people or sits on a judgment seat and he brings Jesus in front of the people along with this verse 16 notorious prisoner called Barabbas. That's customary for Pilate to exonerate one prisoner at the Passover and hand them over to the Jews, let the man or the woman walk free. And so, Pilate, seeking to get himself off of what amounts not to merely be a judgment seat, but a hot seat, desires to punt on his decision to free Jesus. After all, if he frees Jesus, he's going to uh, sort of earn for himself the ire of the chief priests and the elders. He's in a punt. What are you doing, Pilate, says one of his men. Well, listen, I, I don't, I'm not going to gain anything by letting Jesus go. We got this guy Barabbas. Do you know anything about Barabbas, he says to his guy? He's notorious. I mean, if Barabbas lived in our day and age in our community, Barabbas would have found himself front and center, front page of the Newcastle News. Everybody knew what the deal was with Barabbas, Matthew just calls him notorious. But since that means everybody knew what he was about, let me fill in the gaps for you from Matthew's colleague Mark. Here's what Mark writes, chapter 15, verse 7. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas, Mark 15, 7. He's notorious because he's a murderer. Everybody knows Barabbas. Stay away from Barabbas. That man's a killer. And so Pilate, as he begins to plot for himself and plan to get himself off the hot seat, he says to his friend who asked him, what are you doing? He says, certainly they're not going to let Barabbas go. I mean, I like Jesus, but this guy's a murderer. And so he asks, verse 17, whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? Now, some of the early manuscripts tell us that Barabbas is the last name of a man whose first name was Jesus. So I am tempted, very tempted, to adopt the NIV's translation of verse 17, that's the new NIV, which says, which one do you want me to release for you? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? Which Jesus do you want to walk free? The murderer or the Messiah? And I love that translation because it highlights exactly what Pilate's up to. Surely they won't release Barabbas over Jesus, right? Because here's the thing. Jesus is innocent, and Pilate knows it. He knows it. 
And we know that he knows it because of what Matthew tells us in verses 18 and 19. He's got two reasons to know that Jesus is innocent. Verse 18, he knew that it was out of envy that they, that is the chief priests and the elders, delivered him up. I mean, was it that Pilate detected in the silence of Jesus the innocence of Jesus? We don't know. But what we do know is that as he listened to the testimony of the chief priests and the elders, he's perceptive enough, he had enough first century street smarts to know these men are really just jealous that people are interested in Jesus and not quite so interested in them anymore. And besides that, verse 19, this is delicious. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I've suffered much because of him today in a dream. Can you imagine? I want you to just put yourself in Pilate's shoes. You've got this massive consequential decision to make about letting a prisoner go to the Jewish people trying to maintain order and all of a sudden one of your people comes and they, they say, Pilate, excuse me, sir, um, your wife has a message for you. And, and he says, not now, honey. Uh, you can tell Mrs. Pilate I'm busy. Uh, we'll, get, we'll get to that later. And, and, and the, the man says, well, actually, uh, Mrs. Pilate, she's had a bit of a nightmare. And Pilate goes, what are you talking about, a nightmare? I'm, I'm in a nightmare. You see what I got on my hands? You want to talk to me about a nightmare? I got this Jesus guy. I don't know what to do with him. And the man says, well, it's funny you should say that because her nightmare was about that man. What? Yeah, she had a nightmare about that guy. She said that she suffered because of him today in a dream. Said she... She thinks that the guy is, he's a righteous man. Now, don't you know Matthew's the only one who tells us about this dream? Let's not go nuts. Matthew clearly is interested in dreams. Joseph has a dream in chapter 2. Uh, the wise men have dreams in chapter 2. Here, Mrs. Pilate has a dream in chapter 27. I don't think that we're meant to say, okay, now I should expect for God to speak to me in my dreams. This tells us what happened to them and then, not what happens to you and I now. Otherwise, you have to say, God, speak to, speaks to me as loudly in my nightmares as he does in my sweet dreams. I don't think that's the case. What is this here for? The point isn't that she had a dream. It's what the dream was about. It was about the righteousness of Jesus. Do you see how this fits into the theme of Jesus being innocent? He's not only innocent, he's righteous. That is to say, he doesn't merely shun the evil, he pursues the good. He fully conforms to the law of God. He is perfect. Mrs. Pilate knows this. Mr. Pilate knows this. There's no way they're going to ask for Barabbas, right? Never underestimate mob mentality, friends. Verse 20. Chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. Well, that's unexpected. And the governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ, the king? Let him be crucified. Kill him. Pardon the murderer, kill the king. Why, verse 23, what evil has he done? That is the question, isn't it? 
But as is the case, when you have a frenzied crowd, rationality goes out the window. They shouted all the more, let them be crucified. We don't care about the reasons. We're bloodthirsty. Let's do something here. And so when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, that is, his plan had utterly failed. Rather that a riot was beginning because of his wavering and indifference. He took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. Now, you can wash your hands as much as you want, but soap and water can never cleanse from sin. I remember meeting a man that had become a Christian in the military, and he shared his testimony with me. He said, you know, one day and uh, as I was going to the showers, I just was overwhelmed with a sense of my guilt, and so I just, I just showered. So I was in there for an hour and a half. I didn't even realize I was just showering. I felt every bit as guilty on the way out as I did on the way in. That's because we need Jesus to cleanse us from our guilt. He can protest his innocence, but he, just like the Jews of the time here, is guilty. I'm innocent, he says. See to it yourselves. It's your problem. And they cry out, his blood be on us and on our children. Not only do we want him dead, we're willing to accept full responsibility. Now this text has been used in the past to justify anti-Semitism. Let me just highlight what should be painfully obvious. This comment is made by a specific set of people in a specific time. It wasn't made by every Jewish person who ever lived. This is a frenzied crowd before a wavering governor who accepts full responsibility for the decision to have Jesus put to death. Rebecca McLaughlin writes in her book, Confronting Christianity, this is one of the most brilliant sentences I've ever read. Read the New Testament, and you will find that trying to marry biblical Christianity to white-centric nationalism is like trying to marry a cat to a mouse. One is designed to hunt the other, not mate with it. Isn't that brilliant? I texted Kendall that sentence. I said, one day I will write a sentence half as good as that one. No, this isn't a warrant for racism or anti-Semitism. It's merely the confession of guilt by a frenzied crowd. It's really the climax of the text. They've, they've gone from bad to worse. The voice of conscience... Silence. The voice of Pilate's wife's dream drowned out. There is now nothing more than the shouts of his blood be on us and on our children crucified. And it seems to end in such an understated way. They released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Can you imagine? I mean, this is the exact opposite of how Pilate wanted history to be written. If Pilate would have had his way from the beginning when he hatched this plan to turn it over to the crowds to punt, he would have imagined that verse 26 would have read, then he released for them Jesus and having scourged Barabbas, delivered him over to be crucified. One of the commentators made this really provocative suggestion that you know, there are three crosses on that that hill, and that the center cross was reserved for Barabbas. That's why it was there that day. 
And the two thieves on either side of Jesus as he was crucified were the cronies of Barabbas. Can't know for sure, but it certainly sounds accurate. But here's what I want you to see. Whether or not that was actually Barabbas' cross, it was Barabbas' cross, if you get my drift. My, everything I've learned about being a father, I shouldn't say that, I've learned quite a bit from the scriptures. But as you know, we learn by example, and I, I've learned it from my father. And when I was growing up, my, my dad would always say to me, anytime I got sick, he would look at me with these eyes just filled with compassion. You guys can tell I miss my dad, right? He would look at me with these eyes of compassion. And he would say, partner, I wish I could take it from you. It was just so sweet. Such a masculine, powerful man. And he would would just fill with compassion for his children. And so when, when Henry was born, it was just my pattern. Whenever Henry gets sick, I'd say, Henry, partner, I wish I could take it from you. I got to tell you, the time that Henry said that to me when I was sick, I was like, it was over, man. I'm telling you what, he could have asked for every Lego ever created, and I would have bought it on the spot. He didn't, fortunately, but he could have. Oh, it's just so sweet, isn't it? It's that sentiment of like, I wish I could stand in your place. And it's really easy to say because it can't be done. Not with illness, not with a mere human. But friends, the flashing neon signs should be going off for you saying, this is the gospel. What you're seeing happen with Barabbas is a picture of the gospel. This is what Jesus does. He takes the sinner's cross. So that he looks at his people filled with compassion and he says, oh, you know I can take that from you, right? You know I can stand in your place, right? I'll take your sin. I'll die for your sin. Just believe me. Just trust me. Stand in your place. That's what I mean when I say that what happens with Barabbas is the symbolism of substitution. I'm merely trying to alliterate that that's what's happening. It's the symbolism of substitution. You know, we began our time together in this sermon by saying nothing, uh, very little, um, horrifies our sensibilities more than an innocent person who's punished for a crime they didn't commit, and its corollary, the parallel, the flip side, a guilty person who's left unpunished. But I think now that we've been through our text, I want to change that for a second and, and, and feel the weight of this. The story of the gospel is not, it is not that an innocent man is sentenced to death and a guilty person is left unpunished. Listen, the story of the gospel is that. An innocent, a righteous man is sentenced to death 
so that, so that, not and, so that. Guilty, sinful, lost, condemned people like you and me can go free. Who is this Jesus? Jesus is the king who not only rules over you, but suffers for you. Jesus is the king who wears the cross and bears the crown. Do you know what he says to you this morning? So you can walk. You've got some very real guilt. And there are some very serious consequences, but you can walk right now. If I stand in your place. If you believe, I'll take all of your sin and give you all of my righteousness. Friends, if you could summarize the gospel in one word, it would be hard to do much better than substitution. In my place, condemned he stood. Trust him. Lord, what amazing, amazing truths. Lord, in our most sober and sane moments, it's, it's almost too good to be true. It is too good to be true. How could this be real that you, the offended party, would die for us, the offenders? that you would rescue us from sin and shame and an eternity of separation from you, that you would be our substitute. Oh, Father, I pray this morning for the person who has never trusted in Jesus to stand in their place, that you would draw them to yourself by faith. Lord, we began by saying that faith comes by and through the Holy Spirit. So, Spirit, we pray that you would descend and draw men and women to yourself. And for those of us who know you, Lord, may we never tire of hearing of, of how you stood in our place. How you looked at us with compassion in your eyes. And you said, in effect, I can, I can take that from you. Lord, we thank you and we worship you in Jesus' name. Amen.